and pray for us again. Father, thank you for this word, this story that may be familiar to many. And I pray now for you to give us fresh eyes to see it in a new light, to understand it, and to, most of all, apply it, to have your word speak deeply to us, to bring us conviction or comfort, whatever it is that you will, for our good and for your glory. And do this now, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's fair to say that many of us deal with indecisiveness. Every day we are faced with a bevy of choices. What to wear, what to eat, what to watch, who to spend time with, and what are we are to do with that time together. Many of us have trouble deciding these decisions, wavering back and forth, sometimes just paralyzed by indecision. And those are the easy choices. Those are, those are the ones with, with, with very little consequence. We're not even talking about those big decisions in life, about what school to apply to, what degree you're going to pursue, what job to take, who to date, whether or not the two of you should get married. And then, of course, there are those difficult decisions that you have to make on behalf of others. What school should you send your kids to? Especially during this time when school's about to start back up and we know that the pandemic is still raging on. Should we homeschool? Or for some of you, you have to figure out what should we do with our aging parents who need more care than you or your siblings are able to provide? I'm not surprised if you're dealing with indecisiveness in the face of these kinds of decisions. There are many competing choices, many different opinions pulling you one way or another. And so friends, I think it benefits us to ask ourselves, why do we have a hard time deciding? What's behind our indecisiveness? And I think it's probably multifaceted. There are many reasons why we hesitate to decide, but probably chief among them would be fear. Fear of making a decision that we're gonna later regret. Fear of choosing the lesser of options. Fear of missing out on the benefits of the option that we didn't choose. And so we tend to rationalize this tendency to push off a decision to delay making a choice. And of course, this indecisiveness will eventually creep into our spiritual lives and affect the choices that we have to make about spiritual realities that carry a great larger consequence, an eternal consequence. I know some of you here in this room are, are still seeking, they're seeking the faith, still asking the big questions, still not ready to decide if you are going to believe God, if you are going to follow God or not. You do see good reasons to believe in God, which is why you're even here in church, but you don't feel ready. And so you've been pushing off that decision. Now, there are also those of you here who have grown up in church, or perhaps you're a kid right now growing up in church. You believe in God. That's not the issue here. But if you're honest, you have to admit that God really isn't 
a top priority in your life. Your attention and your allegiance are drawn away all the time by lesser gods, by either your academics or your work, by a relationship, by your family, by just entertainment and games drawn away all the time. You're wavering in your commitment to the Lord God. The same question that Elijah posed to the Israelites, I think, could really be asked of us today. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? How much longer will you continue hesitating, pushing off a decision? When will you decide if you are going to believe in God or not? When are you going to decide whether you are going to give your life wholly over to the Lord? How long are you going to waver with your attention and your allegiance between God and lesser gods? Friends, I hope the answer is that today is the day that this waiting is not going to be any bit, any bit longer, but that today is the day you make that decision, that today is the day you choose to follow the Lord God and to do so with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so that's why we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 18 and the best-known event in the life of Elijah, his confrontation with the prophets of Baal. We've been in this series this whole summer that we're calling Heroes of the Faith. We're trying to learn from the high points in the stories of all these Old Testament heroes. And I think Elijah has a lot to teach us today, those of us especially who are vacillating between different loves and allegiances, limping, as he says, between two different opinions. My prayer is that today is going to be the day something changes. It's the day that you decide what you're going to do with the rest of your life. I divided this message into three sections based on three things I see Elijah doing in our passage. If you want to follow along with my outline, you can find it in your bulletin. Three things that we see Elijah doing. First, we see him challenging our indecisiveness. Second, we see him confronting our idols. And third, we see Elijah calling on the incomparable God. So let's begin with Elijah challenging our indecisiveness, our limping between two different opinions. But before we dive right on into this story, let's consider the context of this confrontation between the prophet of Yahweh and the many prophets of Baal. The event uh, that's found in our story happened 800 to 900 years before Christ. And this is all occurring in the northern kingdom during the time when the nation of Israel was divided into two. And the king of the north was a man named Ahab, who was a wicked king. And his queen was named Jezebel, and she was even more wicked than him. Together they were on a campaign to make Israel religiously pluralistic. That means they wanted to maintain the worship of Yahweh, the Lord God, But they also wanted to spread and to establish Canaanite religion and the worship of Baal in particular. Baal being the Canaanite storm god. He was the god of thunder and rain. So in response 
to what Ahab and Jezebel are trying to do within the land, Yahweh sends Elijah to Ahab to say to him, and this is early on in chapter 17, that the Lord is shutting up the sky. He's going he's gonna to send a drought upon the land, and there won't, won't be a drop of dew, there won't be a drop of rain until I say so. Do you see what the Lord is doing there? He is humiliating this so-called storm god, this great god of rain known as Baal. The Lord God is exposing the frailty and the futility of these false gods, these, these idols. And everything comes to a head in chapter 18. So there's been now three years of drought. And Elijah is instructed to contact Ahab and to set up a final confrontation. They are to meet on top of Mount Carmel, and Ahab is to bring with him the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who is the consort of Baal. She's you know, the, the, the goddess, uh, the wife of the storm god. And with all of Israel as witnesses, there's going to be this showdown, this winner-take-all final battle on top of the mountain. So listen again to verses 20 to 21. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So you see here, Elijah is challenging Israel's indecisiveness. When it came to religion, they were trying to play both sides. They were trying to hedge their bets. They weren't outright rejecting their Judaism. They still saw themselves as Jews, as Israelites. They didn't abandon the worship of Yahweh. They just wanted to incorporate the worship of Baal. They didn't want to limit themselves to just one God, to just one belief system. You know, if you think about it, as those who live in an ancient agrarian society, there, there was a strong appeal to any religion that, that, that has practices that curries the favor of a storm god. If you want to have fertile land, you want to have good crops coming in season, then it's extremely helpful to be on the good side of a, of a rain god. And so they refused to make a decision to choose between Yahweh or Baal. They feared making a decision that they would eventually regret. They didn't want to miss out, especially on the benefits of having a storm god on their side if they were to end up choosing Yahweh. At the same time, they didn't want to miss out on the covenant, on the promises, the covenant promises that, that were made to their forefathers if they ended up choosing Baal. And so they pushed off a decision, and they kept trying to follow both. Well, Elijah considers that a weak excuse. You think you have a solid system down where you, where you sacrifice to Yahweh every Sabbath, but then you start off your work week with a sacrifice to Baal, praying for rain? You think you figured out a firm and solid solution, but really you're just limp. You're limping. You're hobbling back and forth. You don't have a solid footing in either religion. You are hobbling back and forth between two different belief systems. You have to choose one. Either follow Yahweh 
or follow Baal? But the people respond with silence. It says there, look at the end of verse 21. And the people did not answer him a word. That's because they were probably thinking, as some of you may be thinking, why do I have to choose? Why why can't I just believe a a little bit of both? I, I, I think that was probably what the average person in Elijah's day would have said. They would have said, I I appreciate this about Yahweh worship, but also I I appreciate that about Baal worship. Why are you making me choose sides? That's just like how we think nowadays, isn't it? In our day, the average person doesn't want to have to choose between religions. They're going to say, I'm open to all of them. I'm not so closed-minded as to think that one religion is better than the rest. They're all good. They they all have something to offer. Why do we have to choose? But Elijah says, that's actually the worst position for you to be in. You don't have a solid footing on either side. You're limping. You are about to fall, and it's not going to be pretty. This is not a stable position to be in. Delaying, pushing back a decision, trying to just play both sides. It's a weak and frail and dangerous position to be in. For those of you who have yet to make a decision about the God of the Bible, I hope that you are beginning to see just how precarious of a position you are in. I know you prefer not to take sides. You want to remain neutral. But really, there is no position of neutrality when it comes to God. If you're dabbling here and there with religion, not identifying with one or the other, Friend, you have actually rejected all of them. And you have formed your own religion where you yourself are the creator, where you are the judge over good and evil. You are the final authority and arbiter of truth in actuality. Friend, you already have made a choice. You already have taken a side. You're on your own side in opposition to the God of the Bible. And friend, if you don't come to a decision now, then one day a decision will be made for you. There will come a day when the decision will be made at the judgment seat of God, and you will not like the outcome. Don't assume that judgment is only going to befall on those who are stridently anti-God. Don't think that judgment only is coming for the aggressive atheist or for the brazen blasphemer. There will be plenty of pleasant, open-minded, tolerant individuals who will face judgment on that day because they refused to choose. They limped all their life between two opinions. It's a tragedy. Now look, for me, as a person of faith, as a Christian, I I, I would definitely prefer you. I I would prefer to hang out with you. I'd prefer you to be my neighbor than, than for it to be an aggressive atheist. Given a choice, I would pick you for your open mindedness, for your tolerant stance and attitude. But I'm not the judge. 
It's not my choice that should concern you. It's the judge of all the earth that you have to worry about. And your vacillation, your limping between opinions won't earn you any credit, won't earn you any excuses on the day of judgment. Choose this day whom you will serve. So the first thing we see Elijah doing in this story is he's challenging that very indecision that we deal with. Now, next thing. Next thing we see him doing is confronting our idolatry. I was just speaking to those who wouldn't consider themselves Christians, who wouldn't really consider themselves an adherent of any faith, those who are still on the fence. But now, now I want to speak to those of you who are comfortable calling yourself Christian. You might feel relieved. You might feel a bit excused from the bite of this text because you're thinking, I've already decided. I did make that decision. Whether recently or maybe it was a few years ago or maybe even decades ago, you already chose the Lord God. So you don't see yourself as limping between two different opinions. But don't brush aside this passage too quickly. You may have chosen the Lord and are perfectly comfortable on his side, but is your heart wholly devoted to him? That's the question you need to ask yourself. Granted, you're not drawn to worship any other god or to follow any other religion out there. You're a Christian. You are unashamed about that. Your lips only confess the Lord God. But is it possible that your heart is still vacillating and limping between Jesus and lesser gods? If so, the Bible would call that idolatry. And that's what Elijah is confronting. He is confronting our idolatry. Let me show you what I mean by continuing on in our story. Uh, Starting in verse 22, in verse 22, Elijah lays out the rules of this contest, and he purposely stacks the odds against himself. He gives the prophets of Baal every single advantage. He says, let's take two bulls, and you get to choose which one is yours, and then I'm going to let you go first to build an altar, sacrifice the bull, lay it on the wood, but don't set it on fire yet. Instead, call on the name of your God to bring the fire, and then I'm going to do the exact same thing with my bull. In verse 24, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Now, Elijah might have been referring to perhaps a lightning bolt, assuming a lightning bolt was going to strike. He's basically saying, let's see who's the real God of the storm. Let's figure this out once and for all. So in verse 26, the prophets of Baal take their bull, lay it out on the altar, and they wait. And it says, in verse 26, they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. Well, at noon, we're told that Elijah begins mocking them. Speak up! Cry out a little bit louder. Maybe Baal is deep in thought. Maybe, maybe he's relieving himself. Yes, that's ancient potty humor. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe you, you need to wake him up. Now, that mention of Baal being asleep or being on a journey is actually quite significant because according to Canaanite mythology, 
once a year, and this would be during dry season, this is how they understood and explained dry season, Baal would succumb to death. The god, the god of death in their religion was Mot. So Baal would, would succumb to Mot and, and then would travel in the underworld before reappearing again at the start of rainy season. And that was the cycle. And that was their understanding of what would happen to Baal every year. And so Elijah is not just teasing them. He is exposing the impotence of their rain god. He is reminding them that even Baal has to succumb to death, to the god of death every single year. Maybe he's on that journey in the underworld. That's why he can't hear you right now. So what do the prophets of Baal do? Well, in verse 28, it says, they cried aloud and, and, and they, they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. Wow, that is intense. Man, that's a strange ancient custom. No one would do that today, right? I mean, no one today would, would hurt themselves in a futile attempt to satisfy unappeasable idols, right? Well, I don't know. Now, what's interesting is that this term Baal is actually a generic term for any god. Depending on the context, Baal could also be a word that's translated as master. So Baal is properly understood as a spiritual master, something or someone that has power or control or authority over you. And since it's a generic term, that means anything can have power or control or authority over you, and that thing would be Baal. So do you see what this means? It means that everyone has a Baal in their life. There is something in your life that you are making sacrifices to. There is something that you would be willing to shed blood for, to obtain or to retain, to get or to keep. You might call it a successful career. You might call it academic success. The ancients simply called it Baal. You might call it romance, marriage, kids, family, but they would have just said, that's Baal. So maybe your Baal is money or power, beauty or youth. If it has a power or control over you, a spiritual authority that you look to, that you depend upon for meaning and significance in life, then whatever it is, it's turned into a bale for you. And so I realize that for modern people like us, it sounds strange to be told that you're involved in something so primitive as bale worship, but that's basically what the Bible is saying. That everyone worships something. So the question is not, do you worship a Baal? Do you worship a master? The question is, what kind of Baal? What kind of master are you worshiping? And the point is, if your Baal, your spiritual master, is not the one true God, if it is a lesser God of this world, if it is an idol, then you've got yourself a master who is impossible to please. You will never satisfy 
that earthly veil. Just look back at the text. Remember the, the prophets of Baal, they're, they're limping around the altar. They're slashing themselves with swords. It sounds like some ritualistic dance. But don't you see? These are not worshipers dancing around the altar out of ecstatic joy. These are worshipers who are trying to perform for their bail, trying to please their bail. If they want their bail to pay attention, to answer their prayers, they're going to have to perform. They're going to have to hit all the right steps. So they start dancing. They start performing before their bail, but to no answer. And so they start cutting themselves. Apparently, the worshiper has to bleed if he or she wants Baal's attention. But in verse 29, look at verse 29. It's the saddest thing. It says there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. It's tragic. But that's what you can expect when you try to serve an idol. Idols make Cruel masters, they are never satisfied. They demand you to sacrifice more, perform better, work harder. They are impossible to please. Friends, just think about yourself. Think about who or what you are serving. If getting into med school or, or law school is your bail, or if it's, if it's being accepted into that prestigious program, if that's your bail, if you're hoping that that is going to give you significance and status and a sense of security that you've been craving, then you, you will be perpetually dancing and performing, trying to hit all the right steps. You'll eventually even resort to sacrificing your friends and family, even your own health, hurting yourself, slashing yourself figuratively, working yourself to the bone. But just like those prophets of Baal, you won't hear a voice of affirmation coming from those earthly Baals. No one will answer. No one will pay attention. If chasing that dream job has become your Baal, if career advancement, if career recognition has become your obsession, if you're expecting your job to give you a reason to get out of bed every morning to provide you that meaning and purpose and significance in your life, then I hope you realize you are expecting your job to be Baal, to play God. You're expecting your career to define you but your job is a cruel, cruel master. It'll call you to sacrifice your health, maybe even your marriage, your family, in order to meet all of its insatiable demands. No matter how many goals you achieve in the workplace, you'll always be asking yourself, what's next? What's next? There's always going to be another promotion for you to go after, another rung of the ladder for you to climb. And finally, finally when you think you've made it on top, you'll realize there's another ladder, even taller this time, that I have to climb. Your career makes for a pitiful God because it will always leave you dissatisfied. Now, I know for some of you, maybe your career or, or your academic pursuits hasn't risen to a godlike status for you, but, but maybe for you, it's relationships. Your life is centered around human 
relationships, that person you're dating, the spouse you're married to, the children that you have, you don't just care for them, you don't just love them, you need them. You need them and their approval, you need their affirmation, you need their love, or otherwise you feel angry, you feel jealous, you feel empty, you feel worthless if they don't give you what you need. And that's how you know when a loved one has become for you a bale. Not only are you setting yourself up for disappointment and frustration within that relationship, if you think about it, you're actually being very unfair and cruel to that person. You're forcing that person to carry the weight of Godhood. You're expecting them to give you what only God can provide. Doing that is going to simply crush the person that you care about. And you could very well lose that relationship. Fellow human beings were never meant to be your bail. You know, last week when we looked at David and Goliath, we talked about how easy it is to misidentify yourself in the story, to assume that you're the David, courageously facing down the giants in your own life, when in reality, you're actually one of the scared Israelites whose only hope is that a champion is going to be willing to fight for you. Well, friends, in the same way, let's be careful as we're reading this one, not to quickly assume that we're Elijah in this story, that we're the ones God is going to use to confront all those idolaters in the world. No, my friends, when we read this story, we are either one of the 450 prophets of Baal who are outright rejecting the God of the Bible, or we are one of the Israelites who are, who's just weakly limping between our devotion to the Lord God and our personal bales. That's where we find ourselves in this story. Friends, it's not until we recognize and repent of our idolatry will we ever be ready to call upon the one true God. And that's the last thing we see Elijah doing. He's calling on the incomparable God. I think Elijah lets the prophets of Baal go first because he wants everyone to see for themselves just how futile, how foolish it is to trust in any earthly Baal to answer our prayers. He's hoping that that's going to lead the rest of the people to repentance and to prompt them to now call upon the Lord God. So turn back to our story and let's see what Elijah does when he steps up to the plate. He tells everyone to come, come near. And he rebuilds the altar of Yahweh. He sets up the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he digs a trench around the altar. He lays out the wood and the bull. And then he asks for four large jars of water to be poured out over everything. And to do it not just once, not just twice, but three times. 12 jars full of water drenching all of it. It says the water ran around the altar. It filled the trench also with water. Now, look with me in verse 37. Elijah prays in verse 37. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This, friends, is one of those special moments in redemptive history where God 
simply rolls up his own sleeves. He outstretches his arm, and he demonstrates his sovereign power. He vindicates his godness over all the false gods of the earth. It's up there with the Exodus. The the Israelites never forgot this moment in their history. The memory of it was passed down from generation to generation. In fact, there's this place later on in Luke's gospel where Jesus and his disciples, they enter into a Samaritan village, but the town folk are very inhospitable towards them. And this is found in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56. The disciples, they react to the inhospitality of the Samaritans with anger. And, 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 they, and they turn to Jesus and they ask, quote, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And some manuscripts even add, as Elijah did. So that means that 1 Kings 18 was very well on their mind when they're thinking about calling down fire on the supposed enemies of theirs. They were thinking, hey, let's ask God to send down some fire just like Elijah did on Mount Carmel. But Jesus rebukes his disciples because they didn't get the point of Elijah's story. The point is not, rest assured, God is going to send down fire on your enemies. No, you're not Elijah in the story. It's not about you calling down fire on the people you don't like. Remember, the fire didn't even fall on the enemies. It fell on the altar. It fell on the sacrifice, not the prophets of Baal. You see, like us, the disciples misidentify themselves with Elijah in the story because really the one who's more comparable to Elijah is the Christ whom they were speaking to. In fact, a few chapters later in the Gospel of Luke, after the disciples had asked to call down fire on their enemies, Jesus says later on in Luke chapter 12, verse 49, that he did come to earth to send down fire, but not in the way that you might think. He says, quote, I came to cast fire on earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you see what he's saying there? He's talking about his impending death, and he's describing his impending death as a baptism by fire. Listen to what he's saying. Fire is going to come down from heaven, but not on my enemies, but on me. I'm going to go through the baptism of fire. I'm Elijah, calling on the incomparable God to send down fire. And I'm also the sacrifice on the altar of God. So when I go to the cross, I'm going to carry your sins with me so that the fire of God's holy wrath, which is aimed at your sins, won't come down on you anymore. It'll come down on me. That's where the fire's going. Friends, do you see? That what happened on Mount Calvary was the the moment in redemptive history that surpassed all the other previous events, even what happened on Mount Carmel almost a thousand years earlier. Unlike Baal, 
who was forced to succumb to death once a year, Jesus, he willingly gave up his life to death and once and for all, never again. No earthly bail is going to be willing to do that for you. Your career is not going to do that for you. School is not going to do that for you. Even those earthly relationships you care about, they can't function in that way for you. Instead, they're going to demand for you to perform, to dance, to slash yourself. Friends, Jesus is so much better. Jesus is the one and only master who sheds his own blood for the sake of his followers. The one and only God who gets slashed for the sake of his worshipers. If you're searching for God, or if you're trying to put off those idols in your life and wholly devote yourself to the Lord God, then you only have to look to Jesus who freely gives himself to you, who actually does pay attention to you when you cry out to him, who actually will answer your prayers. Every other so-called God, every other Baal will demand you to perform, for you to sacrifice, for you to shed your blood, but not Jesus. Jesus says, I perform for your sake. My blood is shed for your sake. Jesus is different. Jesus stands alone because he is God alone. Friends, if, you, if any of you have been vacillating, limping back and forth between two opinions, between either believing in Jesus or not, or between giving your heart wholly to him or not, this is the time to decide. Choose this day whom you will serve. When the Israelites saw the fire come down on Carmel, they fell on their faces and they worshiped. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Remember, friends, we are the Israelites in this story, so let's imitate them. Let's turn our eyes to the fire that came down on Calvary. Let's fall on our faces and let's worship our Lord Christ because he is God. He is God. Father, thank you for this passage you provided for us and some fresh eyes to see it in a new light. And I do pray now that you will stir up our hearts with great love and affection for Jesus, for our God. Help us to decide right now to make that choice to follow Jesus with all our hearts. We give our hearts to you right now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.